everyone, and welcome to another episode of What's Up, Woody, the podcast, where it's time to have a real conversation. My name is Woody Woodbeck, your host. I am so happy to be back. Season three, baby. Yes. If there was someone else doing this besides me, they would be clapping right now. (laughs) I'm so excited. You know, the coolest thing about the show is that it's completely independently produced. I do everything from the graphics to the production to um, getting the word out to booking the guests, all of it. Um, So I take a lot of pride in the fact that the first two seasons we have collectively done over 1 million streams, which is absolutely amazing. But of course... You know, we're looking to grow. I'm looking for a company to kind of pick up the show. Um, And the only way for that to happen is for you guys to spread the word. So when you're listening to the show or you go to the page on whatever platform you listen to your podcast, please just go right over there, click um, subscribe. Also rate the podcast, give it a nice five stars. And I uh, thank you in advance for doing so. Um, You know, I'm going to do things a little bit differently this season. You know, what I noticed is I did an episode about gastric bypass and I just talked for basically a half hour and it's one of my most listened to episodes. Now, obviously the topic is pretty cool and I'm sure that it reached a lot of people that um, have maybe have had that or struggled with weight loss or something along the way. But for me, um, I just want to add a little extra flair and truthfully, I see other people do it and they do it amazingly. People like Danny Pellegrino and other podcast hosts where they just talk by themselves and they do such a great job and they're entertaining and I can listen to them all day. So why not change things up a little bit and change the format? We're still going to do great one-on-one interviews. I have some amazing, um, guests lined up for this upcoming season, including the guest in today's episode. Um, but I want to talk about a few things that are on my mind. Number one, Taylor Swift. Let's talk about it. So I saw the Arrows movie, which was absolutely fantastic. If you haven't seen it yet, you got to go and see it. I went and saw it with one of my good friends, Carrie, who's like the biggest Taylor Swift fan. Um, And I absolutely thought that I understand why people spend so much money to see that show. And she just is so captivating in every way that you can't not be happy watching that show even in her songs that are emotional and and um make you feel all the things there's just something very um wonderful about who taylor swift is as a person as a performer and as a songwriter and i love her in every way now this episode drops uh right before halloween weekend which i'm super excited about happy halloween everyone and then that means on october 29th 1989 of Taylor's version comes out. Make sure you guys go out and get that. I've already pre-ordered my uh, vinyl version of it because I have now started collecting her different vinyls um, as they come out, which is super exciting. Um, and I just, you know, I'm. it's not like I sit around and avidly listen to records, but I like collecting them. And also I do have a record player, so I do listen to other records. And so anyways, I, don't, I think Taylor Swift has revolutionized the record industry again because if you notice every album she puts out she puts them out on vinyl she puts them out on cd she even puts out some on cassettes like the woman has really done incredible things to take back kind of those mediums that we had of people in my generation that we all listen to um and is reintroducing to the culture of today and i i find that pretty remarkable i mean that's fucking boss status guys let's just be let's just be honest here watch the movie you gotta see it it's so good i'm gonna go back and see it again and and one last thing about 1989 taylor's version that album to me has some of her best songs in her career talking about blank space 
hello, out of the woods. And truthfully, one of the greatest pop songs of all time, Style, that song is incredible. Like, there, it just doesn't get any better. That, to me, is up there with, like, Teenage Dream, Katy Perry, Dream Lover, Mariah Carey. Like, they are in that same category. Um, I also want to talk about, uh, I just want to pay homage to Matthew Shepard. It was the 25th anniversary of his murder. Um, I know drastic change in topics, but uh, I couldn't have an episode and not talk about it. Matthew Shepard's story is the reason that I came out. Um, I look back on discovering who he was when the whole thing happened, 1998. Um, you know, it, it, there's a lot to be said about the strength of watching his parents through this whole time who are just incredible pillars of hope and beacons of light and who fought to get legislation passed when for years and years and years nobody would help them and nobody would pass anything that protected LGBTQ people. And finally president Obama did. Um, and that was, but that took literally years, but the Matthew Shepard story, I watched the Laramie project that came out years ago. And I remember I started my own gay street Alliance because I realized that what we needed to do was build the bridge, right? Like we needed to stop things like that from happening and get the word out and, and help, um, you know, at that time, truthfully, like, help straight people realize that we weren't scary. Like, there's nothing to be afraid of. Like, gay people are cool. <laughs> like, we're just like you. Uh, we're also, even though we're cool, we could still be assholes. But so can heterosexual people. The, my point is, is that we're, you know, back then, we were looked at like, oh, God, you know, oh, that person's gay. And there was a lot of fear and hate that came out in the Matthew Shepard story. And that was the whole reason he was killed. Um, so I look back on Matthew Shepard and I have profound greatness for how society helped tell his story in so many ways. And, you know, that movie with Christina Ritchie, I remember, and there were so many other big actors, I can't even think off the top of my head, but they told the story of his murder and that changed my life when I saw that movie. And I came out shortly after that to my parents and my friends, and I remember the day. Um, so I just wanted to honor Matthew Shepard and his journey. Um, yeah, it makes me emotional talking about it. I don't know why. You know, Matthew Shepard is, um, there's a lot of him, a lot of people like him, a lot of stories like him, and that's wildly unfortunate. But I'm glad that um, Matthew's story got to change the world, and I'll leave it at that. Um, before I move on to our amazing interview, I wanted to do one other thing. So Rosie O'Donnell is one of my heroes and I love her to pieces and she has a new podcast out called Onward and it's fantastic. It's just kind of what the Rosie O'Donnell show did for us. Like when I was growing up, like that show was my everything and I've talked about it at nauseum. I've talked about it on the show. I talk about it on my social media. But Rosie O'Donnell truly changed my life and, and saved my life in a lot of ways. Her show really did. I had John McDaniel on the show, who was her band leader and like her BFF and co-host on that show. Um, so to say that my obsession is is mild uh, is the wrong statement to say. I am an extremist when it comes to Rosie O'Donnell and my love for her. But um, I figured I could talk about it now on the show. 
And what I'm trying to do is get her on the show. So what I want everyone to do is if this clip drops or the show drops, share it to Rosie O'Donnell, tag Rosie O'Donnell in the comment, whatever it is, somehow, some way, let's get it out to her. It would mean the world to me if you all, anybody out there or somebody can get this to her. Um, it, it Truly, like, there are people in my life that I've gotten to meet and I've gotten to meet Rosie uh, after a Broadway show and it was just in passing and, you know, I got to tell her a little bit of my story and all that I could in a minute and hug her and I got a picture with her. And um, But she remains one of my heroes and there is a very small list of those type of people in my life and she is one of them. So it would be a dream come true to have her on this show. So if you're out there and listening, please do me a favor, tag Rosie O'Donnell or get this to her in some way, shape or form. I appreciate you all in advance. With that being said, let's get to our interview. On this episode, I have the one and only Coco Peru. If you don't know who Coco Peru is, first of all, you've been living under a rock for many years. Number two, she's literally an LGBTQ icon, performer, drag artist, like just everything that you can envision, somebody who is a trailblazer in LGBTQ rights and um, storytelling is exactly who she is. And I love everything about her. I recently got to see her live here in Atlanta. And if you have a chance, please go and see her. Um, but I want the interview to speak for itself because she talks so candidly about her gay history and her thoughts. And I share my thoughts, but truly... Coco Peru is somebody I admire and I look up to, and she's really been there with our community through it all. And she 100% deserves the respect attached to her name. And I just love her to pieces. So without further ado, here it is. Here's my interview with Coco Peru on What's Up, Woody. Hello. Hi, Woody. How are you? Hello, gorgeous. How you doing? Good. I, you know, I'm on the road, so I don't have my normal um, microphone to make it sound any better. Oh, it's fine, Zoli. It's totally okay. Don't worry about it. What's up, everyone? And welcome to another episode of What's Up, Woody? My name is Woody Woodbeck, your host. And, you know, as we always provide here on What's Up, Woody, it's time to have a real conversation. And we're going to have one with an LGBTQ icon someone I've admired for a very long time. I've gotten to meet, I've gotten to know, uh, and I'm so, so, so happy that she is here on this podcast. Welcome, Coco Peru. Darling, how are you? I'm well, Woody. How are you? I'm doing so good. I'm so happy to have you here. I've been, I, you know, I'm walking into my third season here, and I was thinking about who should I have on that I've been dying to talk to and have like a conversation with and just get to know better. And you, my dear, were one of the first people I thought of. Um, so thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. What's been happening in your life? What's going on? Oh gosh. Uh, well, I'm still working, which is incredible after, you know, this is my 33rd year as Coco Peru. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm dealing with my mom being 97, so I'm dealing with uh, uh, a mom who now has dementia. Things you don't think about when you're young, you know, and how life hits you. And um, I recently took a bad fall and broke my foot, so that's left me feeling kind of vulnerable as well as you get older. So, you know, life is hitting me from different directions, but then I get to go out on the road and 
do shows and meet people and, and feel that connection and, and the support of the fans has been really incredible. So, um, you know, after 33 years, it still feels fresh and new, but in different ways. You know, I, I've been really lucky on my show to interview these people that represent um, such great things about our LGBTQ plus IA community. Um, you know, and so I always wonder for you after all these years of doing that, what is that, what does that like mean to be something that people look up to or find inspiration or hope in, especially um, within our community, because you've been doing it over, for such a long time and you have seen our community go through phases and chapters and growth. So I wonder like what that experience has been like for you. I think definitely for me, I always try to reflect back on who I was when I was a young, closeted, absolutely terrified queer person. And 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 really, I remember one day where I I was frozen on my couch. And when I say frozen, I, I hate the word literally because everybody uses it. But I literally was frozen. I couldn't move. The fear was so intense because I was trying to picture my future and I saw nothing. And I was very young when I had this experience and it terrified me to think that I was never going to have a career. I was never going to have someone that loved me. No one was going to know who I really was. And I got so overwhelmed by that, that I, I froze. And um, when I think back on that, I, I would have never imagined that I'd have the life that I've created and that uh, my fans have given me. And so I don't take it for granted. And I'm constantly reminded um, to be grateful for what I've been able to create, despite all of my fears and uh, trauma that I still cope with and deal with. I think that's what I always encourage young people to be courageous, that to push forward even with your fears that you you have to take these risks and that life is about taking those great leaps of faith. And so creating Coco for me was a giant leap of faith. It was so not anything I ever thought I would do, you know, but I I had I had people to look to inspiration for like Charles Bush and people that came before me. And that's why I'm such an advocate for representation and, and knowing how important it is for young people to see themselves. Of course, with the internet now, it's so much easier for young queer people to find representation. But back when I was young, that didn't exist. I, I would guess it did exist. It was just a lot harder to find. You know, um, I want to dive into creating Coco Peru, but I feel like to understand who Coco is, we got to understand who the person behind Coco is. So can you talk to me a little bit about like growing up? Like what was your childhood like? Um, I grew up in the Bronx in a lower middle class family, you know, paycheck to paycheck. I was struggling and my parents were um, 
not educated because the I was born late in my parents' lives. So they were from this generation of like, you got to get out there and work. My father went to the war when he was 18. And so World War II. And so they just worked. And, and um, it was a struggle for me growing up. I was this effeminate kid in the Bronx in a very, you know, working class neighborhood where I just did not fit in. And I really feel like every day was a struggle. And I loved summer because it meant I didn't have to go to school and be bullied. I could just be in my own backyard in my own world. My bedroom was my stage where I created, I lived out my fantasies of being an entertainer. And really, I, 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 that's what's sort of sad is that my fantasy world was, was, um, was my reality. That's where I preferred to live. And um, that's great on some level that I had such a great imagination, but on another level, it's completely tragic that that's where I had to, that's where I found my safety. Yeah. And my parents were, um, they were okay. Uh, you know, they struggled, but when I finally did come out, I think the fact that they had lost a daughter, my sister, when I was, born my sister was four, 15 when she died and so my parents were just desperate not to lose another child so they were they were very accepting of me despite their lack of education yeah wow um when you look back you know obviously today it's so different there's i even think about it, like i'm 42 and i think about it all the time like who I look to, to find someone like me. And now in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, oh man, you know, all those formative years as a teenager, I looked to people like Rosie O'Donnell and not even knowing that she was queer, but for some reason, like, you know, being drawn to her um, and finding a glimmer of hope and people like, you know, Mariah Carey and her music, I found like this weird sense of hope in, and now she's a big ally. Um, but I, I wonder for you, like at that time, who did you find the light, in? you know, like, cause I feel like sometimes and you can tell me in your own words, but you know, there's a lot of darkness when we're trying to discover and feel comfortable in our own skin and, and who we are. So I always, I always ask like, you know, who was it that gave you that light? Oh, uh, B. Arthur. <laughs> Amazing. Barbara you got the, you got the right? You got the Nobi or you met B? Yeah. Yes, I became friends with B later on. So it was and Lucille Ball and Liza Minnelli and um, you know, the classic people that people of my generation looked up to. I, I feel like I sound like B. Arthur this morning because it's still morning for me and I had I had a show and I woke very late. But um those women were um like you said with Rosie O'Donnell, they, they were just the women that I was drawn to and they had a sensibility about them. And of course, you know, as you grow up and you realize they were surrounded by gay men who were informing them as well. And it, it, it just makes me laugh that B. Arthur's best friend was Charles Pierce, a drag queen. And so who I discovered on an HBO show he was doing his one person show on HBO 
So I think that those women had a sensibility about them that is on some level queer. Mm-hmm. You know, not that they're queer themselves, but that they they were connected to our community on some level in ways that I didn't understand as a child, but I was picking up on something, some sort of energy that they had. And I think queer people, because we're so sometimes out living outside the box, we develop these receptors, <laughs> these extrasensory you know, receptors that can pick up on these things. And we're very sensitive to those people that end up are our allies. We just know it on some level. And, you know, I just recently had, uh, I was doing my show on Palm Springs and Lucia Ball's daughter was at my show. And I said to her, I said, you know, uh, her name is Lucy Arnez, by the way. But I said to her, I said, when your mom died that day, I was young, but I remember weeping because I really believed that one day I I was going to meet her and become friends with her. Like that was, I just believed that. There was no question about it. And she said, well, someday you will. (laughs) I thought that was so sweet. That's a kid. I did did get to meet, you know, and become friends with the author. Became friends with Liza Minnelli. I'm not friends with Barbara Streisand, but I was introduced to her. And so, um, you know, as a as a gay kid and who who dreamed of meeting these women, to have that become a reality, because I be because I became a drag queen, um, is just such a gift from the universe to let me know that I I made the right choice by taking that big leap of faith and creating yeah. Coco. Yeah, it's interesting when you look back in hindsight you know, and, and realize that in, in so many ways, and I'm a spiritual person, in so many ways, it's like whether we realize it or not, we're always kind of exactly where we need to be, you know, like, or the things are given to us in ways that, from my experience anyways, the, the things that were lights and darknesses kind of always paved that path for me in whatever way, and I'm exactly where I need to be now today because of that. Um, when you look back, what was it, what in your mind made you think, you know what, I need to create persona um, and how did Coco Fru come to be? I I talk about this in my new show, but I, I met a drag queen in Peru, Peru named Coco, who was oh, very famous in Peru. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe that here I was in a gay bar where she was performing and you had to knock on this door that was completely random. You know, there was no signs that gave you any idea that this was a queer club inside. And I thought, how is this drag queen famous outside of this secret gay club and on television? And that got me thinking about that human beings are wired to respond and respect courage and authenticity. And she was being very authentic in a very homophobic Catholic country at that time. And and, uh, people loved her. That got me really, my juices flowing. Then I saw Charles Bush. I was also very 
influenced by um, a trio of gay comedians at that time called Funny Gay Males. I'd never seen gay men talk openly in a club about being gay mm. and have sellout shows. So that was amazing to me. And then I was inspired by the AIDS activism at the time, knowing that storytelling on some level connects us all. And all of these things came together. And I read a book about two spirited people that just changed my life. And all those elements came together. And one day I just said, I'm gonna be a drag queen. And as soon as I said it, it was like this bolt of lightning hit me. It was, it truly was a spiritual calling and everything just started falling into place as soon as I, I not only claimed that for myself, but it felt like I reclaimed it because I felt like that's who I was from the very beginning. But this society and its systems are just set up to, to silence us. And that goes for many groups in this country who are silenced, not just queer people. And so um, I realized that we need to reclaim our voice. And, I, and as soon as I created Coco, I, I started to find my voice again. Do you remember the first time you like ever took a stage as Coco? Yes, it was my show. I actually booked my show as Coco before I ever did drag. Wow. Yeah, I, I just, it was insane. I, I can't believe I did it, but I, I called the club. I said, I'm going to have a show ready in three months. I'd like to book it in your club. The guy knew me already. And um, I gave him the title, the character's name, and then I had to set about writing a show and creating Coco in three months. And um, that first show was called My Goddamn Cabaret. And it slowly became a, uh, a thing that people came to see because it was a drag queen doing monologues. You know, that was, wasn't what drag queens did at that time. And, and being autobiographical, not pretending to be a woman, uh, talking about being a guy, but uh, in drag and just crazy. But it became an overnight success and word spread. And and it was an incredible moment in my life. What year was that? <laughs> um, 1991. And I started creating all of these. This stuff started brewing in 1990. Yeah. Or even earlier, 18, 1989, really, is when I started this whole search and I think my first show was in 1991 yeah you know you have just not as an individual and as a performer and you know part of this LGBT community I, I wonder if you can give me just a thought and we don't have to go too much into it because I know for some people it can be painful to talk about but really what that um and then we will move on to much brighter and lighter topics. But I always ask, you know, what that time for members of the LGBTQ community were like, obviously seeing the hardships of the AIDS epidemic and kind of what that did to us made us targets on such a huge political level. Um, and we were watching our brothers and sisters, you know, die 
left and right. So I wonder like what that and being alive during that time was like for you. It was a real mix of, and maybe it's because now I'm looking back, I'm being nostalgic, but, um, you know, I do remember being absolutely terrified. Of course, my whole sexual awakening was happening during an AIDS crisis, which was terrifying. And um, so, you know, sex for me was a difficult journey because, you know, I craved it and wanted it, but at the same time, it was attached to this very terrifying moment in our history. But at the same time, you know, that kind of activism and that kind of, uh, it was so present. And, you know, people have asked me not to use the word queer because they find it very offensive. And, you know, when I saw those signs on, you know, just slapped all over New York City that said, you know, queer nation and silence equals death. And it was so empowering for me to reclaim that word and to find that community and that we were strong and we were fighting and coming together. And I did lots of benefits or performed for patients in hospitals. So it, it was a time where people pulled together and I kind of wish that young people nowadays experience not that hardship, but experience that kind of activism and that, you know, these life just doesn't happen to you. You have to create it. And, and just in the same way I created Coco Peru, uh, we create our lives and we create our, our experiences. And, and, you know, we are facing a lot of uh, crap nowadays. And I, I, I wish the the um, the younger people nowadays had that sort of experience of activism that when you're fighting for your life, uh, you there's no choice but to just get involved. And so I I guess that's why I'm nostalgic of that time because it it did force young people to get involved and not not all young people but i mean certainly there was a large group of young people and i was i wasn't even uh in act up although i did go to a meeting and I, but act up is what inspired me to create coco peru sure sure you know it's interesting because i feel i look back and i'm like you know that our history is um so remarkable and the trials and tribulations of people and finding hope from stories that I hear from people in that time and books that I've read. And I look back and I think about how for me, um, I was, I was a part of something similar with the marriage movement, you know, like we, I remember when I was living in California in 2008 and like, Oh yeah. You know, creating a PSA mm -hmm. for the No on Prop 8 campaign and like calling all my celebrity friends, Kathy Griffin and all these people. And I was like, I'm going to do this video. I need you to be in it. And, you know, eight times out of 10, people said yes. And then there were those two times where people are like, sorry, I, ju I just can't. I can't go on public record supporting yeah. gay marriage. And yeah, that was crazy to me because I was like, first of all, you live in California. Hello. Uh, secondly, like, what are we doing in 2008 that, th that we are still having to fight for that? And then I remember that night 
we were celebrating Obama winning. And then the fear really started to sink in where I was like, wait a minute, is this is Prop 8 going to pass? Or are we really going to have to do this again? And mm-hmm. that next day, we gathered in West Hollywood and we marched to the streets. I was there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, and you that, know, great, that march, I mean, excuse me, that march went on forever and ever because ever. they rerouted us. Yeah, remember? We all and I was three factions too. The one went to yes, like was, yes, and I remember we walked for so long, and I, you know, I have this bad leg. Yeah. And back then there was no Uber, and oh my God, walking home. I said to my husband, you know, my 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 activist days are over as far as these <laughs> and especially because I remember we were walking through West, we were walking through West Hollywood, past all the bars, yeah, and there were all these young kids standing in the in the bars looking at us yeah and we started shouting at them out of the bars and into the streets out of the bars and into the streets and because i thought it, you know the older people we can't and i was young younger back then but i remember thinking like why aren't these young people in the streets with us that you know and it boy that i'll never forget that night i and i, and I will tell you this story go ahead um I hope you weren't one of the people involved in this, but I, it was a, um, it was some sort of event, and I was asked to speak for gay marriage, and I was asked to speak at it, and I had just come to LA, and I was very excited to do this because it was something I so strongly believed in, and my husband was still living in in uh, on the East Coast, and I was out in LA, and I missed him terribly, and he was coming that weekend, and we were going to go to this event together, and I was going to write this empowering kind of speech for gay marriage. And then I worked on this speech all weekend and told my husband, as much as I want to be out there doing things with you this weekend, I've really got to work on this. And then all of a sudden I was called that weekend and told I was no longer going to be speaking because there had been some important um, people that were now attached to it. And so because those celebrities were going to be a part of this, the press was coming. And I was told they didn't think it would be a good idea to have a drag queen scene with these now important people that were coming who weren't even gay. Sure. And I thought, what do they know about gay marriage more than I do? You know, and it really struck me that like how the, gay, the LGBTQ community can sometimes turn on its very own, which is even worse than just other people outside of our community being ignorant. And I can't tell you how many times I've experienced that within our, my whole, my whole career is littered with those moments. And so I really told that poor person off and he was just the person delivering the message to me but i did tell him i said this is the very reason we will lose because you yeah. people turn on your very own and when even when there were people in our community saying it's not the right time for gay marriage you know we've got to play our cards right it's not the right time i i, I was like that is bullshit the time is now it's my moment I'm not waiting around in the same way I claimed Coco proof for myself and didn't wait for the right moment. I forced myself on the world and I rode the trains in New York city in full drag, forcing myself 
on people. You're going to look at me and you're going to respect me. And if you can't respect me, you, you know, then that's your problem. But anyway, I'm going off. I, no, it's I just don't. it's just wild how our own community can turn on those of us, trans, leather, you know, all of us that live outside that little box within the queer community that, that believes that, you know, we have to represent in a certain way. You can't be too black. You can't be too sassy. You can't be too this. I say no to all of that because then you're, you're, you know, you're marginalizing people within our own community. So it's, that's my little two cents on, on I, how we have to constantly check ourselves in our own community. I agree with that. I, I don't, I don't, there are, there are some, there is something to be said about that. I'll tell you two things. One is I experienced that. Um, and I remember it all the time because I, I was lucky enough to be hired as a producer on Queer Eye, the reboot. Um, and we, you know, we went on to win awards and, you know, it was so well received. But the entire time making that show, Coco, honestly, I kept saying to myself, are the gays going to hate it? And it made me nervous and it made me second guess the way I was telling stories and the things and like how I was producing, because I really thought wholeheartedly, I was like, man, the gay community is so ruthless to our own that it made me double guess and think about things like that. I would normally be like, not even think about Right. That was a question on my mind the whole time where I was yeah. like, man, are the gays going to hate this? Are the gays going to be upset every time Jonathan says, girl, you know, like, like every time I thought about all of that stuff. And I don't, I don't think I've really ever talked about that too much, but like, that was a real fear of mine where I was like, man, are, because I know how mean, and how awful the gays can be. Yeah. I, Facebook just reminded me today of like, it was one year ago about how the gays were so upset about bros, about the movie bros. And like, I I just, it, 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 so to your point is, is that that unfortunately does happen. And it's remarkable to me that in the same breath as we argue and fight for acceptance, we are the first to, you know, cut each other down. And that's wild yeah, but I th I'm I also think like there's people in there's you know people in positions of power that um and so I've experienced a lot of that. I remember when Logo was first being talked about and whatnot. I was very excited to finally have a gay channel and what and I went in and pitched shows to Logo uh, and was told we we're, we're not doing drag. Mm. Yeah, and I just. Like what? And and now to see the shows that are on television that I basically pitched many, many, many years ago, it is kind of like, wow, I was just maybe a little bit ahead of my time. But, you know, to, to hear people in positions of power just disregard you or tell you there's already a, a drag queen on TV. Like, wait, would you say that to any other person? Like, there's only there's already one one of you on TV and that's plenty. That's just absurd to me. But those are the things that you know I've heard and and after a while it becomes normal and you have to keep reminding yourself no this isn't normal to be treated poorly because of who you are. 
And so anyway, let's move on to something cheerier. Yes. So I want to talk about, I want to talk about a a bunch of stuff because I like, I had to write notes when I was thinking about to make sure I had a collection of thoughts and didn't sound like a crazy person. But I remember years ago, YouTube was a thing that people were discovering and you started putting out, I kept, I feel like I was calling them like diary entries because I felt like I was watching what you might like write in your diary or something, but you would go shopping and and look for things. And I still remember you went looking for the panettone cakes and something bread, right? The sweet bread. Yes. So I remember, and I laughed so hard at that video because it was something so simple, but I felt like oddly, weirdly connected to you just for something so funny and so simple in that. And the celestial teas. So can you talk to me about where in your mind, because those all went very viral, I remember at the time. So can you talk to me about like when you decided or how you decided, I got it. I'm going to go shopping at Walgreens. This, it was all a mistake. It was just a big, giant mistake. Is that, um, is that really true? Yes, because it, it was really only supposed to be one video. And so what happened was my manager was working with a young man who's a big YouTube star now named Garrett Watts. And he wasn't managing Garrett. I, 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 I think Garrett worked in the same office. I forget how they knew each other. But Garrett was very creative and very, very driven. And so we, I, I started getting all these photos of people that were seeing this Coco Peru wig in Target. And so <laughs> my manager said, why don't we make a video, Garrett? I know this guy, Garrett, who's like into making videos. And we'll just go shopping, looking for that wig. And it'll be for your fans, a way to acknowledge them. So that's what we did. And people loved it so much that he said, well, why don't we do another one? And so I said, well, you know, I always talk about Celestial Seasons Detention Tamer Tea because I just think it's such a funny name and I really do drink it. I can never find it. So why don't I do like this quest to find it? And that one, Tyler Oakley, who's a big YouTube gay star, reposted that. And that's why it went viral, that yeah. one. And then that's why my videos, that's how it started. And, you know, you said something about them being so simple. And that's what was always, I was always kind of embarrassed when people were like, I love you, Coco And they talk about my videos and I'd be like, oh my God, God, you're so stupid. That's not, like, I pour my heart and soul into my written shows. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. They're, they're, for me, they're crafted and I, it's just such an important way for me to express myself that those videos were like just kind of a joke but i realized that they have value for people and i also realized that a lot of the young people that watched it especially young straight girls were what they're responding to is it's not easy being a young person in the world today and for them to see me walking through a kmart like i own the place not caring what anybody thinks of me and owning my space in the world. I think that's an important message for young people to receive. And whether or not they were consciously like 
thinking those exact thoughts. Again, I think their receptors were out there looking for people that made, gave them permission to own their space in the world, regardless of what they look like. And, you know, with today's internet and kids having such access to so much, I think they do need representation to feel comfortable. You might not, you might not, not fit in, but that's okay. You, you fit in wherever you are at that moment. You make your own space. I, I think people were responding to that part of it. Also, I'm just, you know, kind of just talking, you know, I sound like everybody's annoyed ants. You know what I mean? I think that's what people love so much was that they were very relatable. Can you be my mom? Can you be my grandma? A lot of that. And I was so thrilled by that. I I didn't care. I loved it. Yeah, it's very, and obviously, when I say simple, I mean by design. Like it's. No, no, I know. I I don't take offense to that, sweetheart, because they are simple. I totally, I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to see you do more, more of them. Like, I, think you know, what happened was that the, 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 um, the pandemic hit and that just stopped it at all. And then it's just been kind of hard getting back into the swing of it. And, and Garrett's gone on to, you know, his own world. And, and so I, I don't work with him. Michael was doing my videos for a while, my manager and editing them. And he's busy and has a, Alive, so it's just been difficult, and also mentally, I I I was very like a lot of people. I I was really affected by that lockdown, and and it took me a while to want to even come back out into the world and feel comfortable and be in stores and be touching things again. You know, it, it is wild how much that that changed people, and we've had to readjust to being back into the world yeah i think it's the craziest thing about it it really made us question our own mortality and like i don't i think that most of us probably walk through life not even thinking about that you know yeah well i had an act i'm sorry finish your thought i was just saying yes i I had an accident when i was a teenager where i did die so that pandemic triggered a lot of that uh, where you're just going about your life, and then be, and then out of the blue, something so big hits you that you can't believe it's happening in your lifetime, and and so that psychologically, that pandemic really, um, and I talk about it in the, my new show because I, I I mentioned it and 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 had a young person say to me that pandemic is such old news, and I I I just was like what like you're you've moved on already like to me it's still i'm dealing with the after effects you know still i i my eyesight i i've, I've damaged my wrist from i i'd started sleeping in the fetal position i'm mean, just crazy stuff sure sure. So. sure yeah it definitely was it definitely was my fault, that's for sure like yeah and I, I think that you know we saw especially americans saw culture just changed i mean look at drinking alone I got sober following the pandemic. Oh, congratulations. I, well, thank you so much, sweetheart. I really lost myself in a lot of that. You know, I went to like kind of deep, dark places. And I, you know, if you look just at statistics in the United States, like what, I think it's like one out of every three deaths 
or alcohol related and like oh wow sales skyrocketed like mm. during the pandemic went up 300 and i'm not even making those numbers up i'm i'm mostly sure that that wow. where you're at as a country so it's crazy when you really look at it and think about it like to your point like what that really did to us as a community and yeah really um you know i wanted to ask you about some moments in your history and in your life that have really like stuck out and become parts of queer history and i i would be remiss to not ask you about trick because i remember and i'll tell you this i remember I was starving as I was discovering and going through my high school phase of like telling people that I was bisexual and then, you know, going away to college and then finally really discovering who I was, um, who I was. And then coming, I came out, uh, I came out in a big way. I was on the radio in New York and I came out on the radio and I had told my family like the day before I was like, yeah, here you go. I'm gay. And by the way, I'm going to be openly gay on the radio at the time, which was like, um, but I remember moments in my life where like things stuck out to me and, and moments of things that I watched. And I remember along with Queer as Folk and along with Broken Hearts Club, things that really allowed me to identify with being gay, Trick was one of those movies or moments. Um, so I really want to know and understand because the amazing thing about you being in that movie is you have literally like a four and a half minute monologue. <laughs> like I think it's longer. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. so it's and it's that is like unheard of. And so talk to me a little bit about how that came to be and what that was like for you. I can only imagine. Okay. So Jim Fall, who directed it, had written a movie called 88s that I was in. Okay. And we did a reading with oh god lots of stars were you know nathan lane cindy lauper um oh another the italian actor that has that uh show where he travels around italy uh eating Virginia. oh anyway he's so good looking anyway um so it, it, it was really moving forward and then jim presented me with this script at that point it was called gay boy and Someone else had written it. Jason Schaefer had written it. And I was not in the script, but I read that script. And I said, oh, Jim, this is going to be your first movie. I know your heart and soul is in the 88s and you wrote that. And I know I'm in that movie, but uh-uh, this is the future. This is your future. 80, uh, you know, gay boy at that time. It later got changed to Trey. And then um, for his first reading of it, he was auditioning people. He asked uh, if I would help him audition people and read against the other characters. So I was reading all the other characters auditioning. And at the end of the audition, he said, why don't you just play Catherine? And I'll explain to the audience that in the in the um, movie, it'll pl be played by a, a woman, but you're so funny doing it. So I rewrote a couple of the lines, like, where's the cheese? Where's the cheese? Yeah, I need it. And, and after the reading, everyone said, the drag queen is so funny, keep her in the movie. And they were like, well, it doesn't make sense for her to play Catherine, but we'll write a report. And so they wrote me that scene. And I said, can I rewrite this and make it in my voice? And, you know, can I make it funnier, basically? And so they said, sure. And so I wrote that monologue 
with the bones of what Jason had written to get the points across. And, you know, to see my something that someone had actually said to me used on the billboard, it's big, it's beautiful, and you're going to love it, was such a thrill, you know, that they used a line I wrote to promote the whole movie. And it was a movie at the time that was really kind of important, even though it's silly and sweet, there were not movies made like that back then. They were usually movies about, you know, the 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 pain of having to come out. The, you know, or movies about AIDS at that time. And and this was just about a, a movie about two openly gay guys who were looking for a place to hook up. Yeah. And the fact that they were gay was not an issue. And so people nowadays might look at that and go, "Oh, what a silly movie!" But at the time. Gay men, young gay men, were not used to seeing themselves represented like that. And that's why it was, uh, I guess, an important movie at that time. Yeah, I mean, it, it still sticks out of me. And I'm, I wonder how if you had a dollar for every time someone came up to you and said, it burns. <laughs> yeah, and I'll tell you, someone actually just said to me last night in Chicago, he didn't say that, but he said, I, I know the, the movie's 20-something years old, but trick meant so much to me. And I said, darling, I never get tired of hearing that yeah so anytime someone wants to talk to me about trick i'm like absolutely it was a wonderful moment in my life and the other thing is i remember watching my first gay movie on videotape in my home and i remember thinking someday i want to be in a gay movie mm -hmm. and when i was at sundance i was watching trick for the first time and all of a sudden i had that moment of oh my god I fulfilled one of my, you know, teenage dreams. I'm in a gay movie. So it was a wonderful experience. It sure, it sure, sure was. And you went out and you went on along with a lot of other notable drag queens at the time to be also a part of Tu Wong Fu. You know, when I think about this movie, I think about the time period, right? And I'm like, what a crazy, like, how did this movie get greenlit? When you think about it, and how did they possibly get three of the biggest stars at that time, truthfully, to be drag queens on camera? Drag went through this like kind of renaissance of it was this wave of drag queen where we're constantly on talk shows and drag just became a a phenomenon in, in New York. And then of course it's 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 it 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 trickled out. And I rode that wave back then. And um yeah, it was incredible that uh, Tu Wong Fu and I think the better movie, um, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, yeah. Um, yeah. both were made, you know, one in Australia and one. In, a lot of people thought that um, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, uh, that Tu Wong Fu was copying Priscilla. But that's not true because I had read the script for Tu Wong Fu um, before it ever got you know, before it got stars attached, when it was just a script that was sort of circulating around the city, somehow it got into my hands yeah. with the idea that I should, or you should audition for this movie and play the role that eventually went to Patrick Swayze. Because at that time, it was probably looked that it was going to be a little independent movie. Right. And then all of a sudden it, it got swept up into, you know, Hollywood. Yeah. And then suddenly Coco Peru was no longer a big enough star to carry that. 
<laughs> but I'll tell you, Patrick Swayze. Humble beginnings. Humble beginnings. Yes, they were so sweet. The, all three of them were the, were the best. I'm not sure how they got along with each other, but individually, they were delight. What was it like being around? Because you obviously you were on set. What was it like being around? You know, I mean, Patrick Swayze. God rest his Patrick Swayze was such a sweetheart and such a dear, kind wonderful man who would call me at home and ask me all sorts of questions to, to, to do his homework and uh, about drag and, and sort of base his character on different aspects of my life and probably some other queens that he called. Uh, I just thought that was incredible that he, he did that homework. He cared enough to really want to understand the gay experience and the drag experience. And, um, but more importantly for me, uh, being a solo performer and and sort of being, um, you know, I, I was very, as courageous as I was and bold as I was back then, I was filled with many, many fears. And so the more important experience for me on that film was being surrounded by other drag queens from New York mm-hmm. and different drag queens from different worlds within New York. Um, and that was very exciting for me. And I loved being around my drag queen, let's say sisters, because uh, I didn't have that experience being a solo performer. And that for me was the best part of it, getting to know other drag queens. You know, I, I look back on that um, and what an amazing thing to be a part of. Is there like a moment and all that besides, obviously, the amazing phone calls from Patrick Swayze that really sticks out to you, any kind of fun thing that may have happened on set or anything that really, you're like, man, I can't believe all this, they're a part of that. Mm. I can't think of anything specific. I will say this, Joey Arias, iconic drag queen, brilliant performer. I loved sitting with Joey Arias and just letting him talk. And I would listen to the most outrageous, filthy stories. <laughs> and just couldn't believe that people could be as outrageous as he was. And I just soaked it up. I soaked it up. And and then of course, Lady Kateria was a Latin queen that worked at La Escolita who was trans. And so that was wonderful to to hear her tell stories about her life and you know, having gone to jail and being put in the men's, you know, oh, it was just incredible to, to learn from her as well. I just loved her. And that's the other thing that, you know, trans women and drag queens back then were a part of the same world and community and sisterhood. And we, there were, I don't remember that there being a line drawn in the sand between those two worlds. It was sort of like a lot of our trans sisters started as drag queens and evolved into owning who they were authentically had always been. And that their drag experience was a part of that. And they honored that. And, and, and so that whole debate nowadays of like, should drag queens be, I mean, should trans people be allowed to be on drag shows and, it's like absolutely they have always been right right a given and so that's interesting that that conversation came up 
with Drag Race when back in the day, you know, there are two, as far as I can remember in our scene in Two One Food, there were two trans women in that opening thing because, of course, they were included in, in our world. Right. Because they went hand in hand. Uh, yes. You know, speaking of um, drag queens and uh, that culture and community, obviously, I used to live in San Francisco. Um, and one of the first people that I met um, when I moved there was Heclina. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Good friend. I know. <laughs> um, but she was a delight. And she always treated me so kindly and invited me and welcomed me to open arms to things. And I was, yeah. I was very luckier to know her yeah on a, on a personal level you know and um so i saw that you are going you taking her place in the golden girls live um up there in san francisco talk to me a little bit about that i know obviously um that's such a big deal and obviously she used to film there i used i like to say i'm filling in for her because i can never replace her she was one of a kind. She was a dear friend. I miss her terribly. I can't, I still can't believe she's gone. And it's a huge loss for me, but I know it's a huge loss for San Francisco. When Darcy uh, asked me to be in Golden Girls, I was visiting my mom. And, and usually whenever somebody asks me to do something, my initial reaction is, oh, God, no, no. Uh, and then I will wind up saying yes, but I've got to work. I've got to work myself towards it. When she asked me, my my initial response was yes. I I, I felt like Heglina was on one side of me and B. Arthur was on the other side of me. And they were both saying yes. Sure. You know, I was friends with B. I was good friends with Heglina. And it just seemed like uh, a no-brainer. And I and I I love San Francisco. And I and I will say my San Francisco audience loves me. Yeah, like, they should. I just feel this wonderful connection with them when I perform for them. And so I just thought this would this would be okay for me to do this. And I'm terribly nervous about it, but at the same time, San Francisco's just one of those cities where you know anything goes. And if I fuck up or whatever, they they kind of love that anyway. They sure, yeah, they sure will. When you fucked up, them when they're they're like cheering. <laughs> that is so, so true. I have to remember that. I learned that working with Peaches Christ and doing her shows that you know, um, it's okay to fuck up in San Francisco, and what a wonderful freedom that. And I, I'm a perfectionist, so I will do everything in my power to like be perfect. But to know that you can fuck up and it's okay, that's a wonderful gift to have. And, and, you know, I have, I, that's a lesson I need in my life. That's why when I did those videos during the pandemic about appreciating the little things, I would film them once and then post it. That was my challenge to myself that I didn't have during a pandemic. I didn't need to be with my words or what I had to say. I just needed to connect with other human beings. That's what was most important. And so I, I'd learned that from the pandemic that sometimes having to be perfect isn't what's most important. That connection with other human beings is what's what's really most important. It, it sure is. It and is. I think that's a, a definitely another lesson that we have learned um, post. Yes. For sure. 
So obviously I'm so excited for you to go and do that. I, um, I guess that it, how many dates are you doing that? It starts on November 30th. Oh my God. It's like a whole month. Yeah. You're at the Victoria like, Theater. Yeah. There's a lot of shows. It's going to be killer for me. I'm not used to working that. <laughs> well, I'm now sure that I'm 58. Gonna oh. It's going to be great. Arcee and the rest of the cast and everybody involved are all super professionals. You know, so they'll make it easy. They'll make it as easy, as easy for me as possible. Yeah. So I'm so excited to, um, you know what, before we transition talking about your tour, I've always wanted can we, to ask can, can, uh, Okay. I'm an old lady and you can put this on the air, but is there a way to pause this? Yeah. What do you need? I need to pee. Yeah, go pee. I'll get another cup of coffee. <laughs> okay, I'll be right back. You're back? He'll edit that. <laughs> yeah, this is a perfect break. <laughs> you can leave the part in about me asking to pee if you think people will think that's I think, honest I think, and cute. I think it is very honest okay. and cute. We'll definitely leave it in. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you the, the, the hair. How did the hair come to be? There's got to oh, be a I used to have much larger hair. For those people that have heard this story before, I'm sorry, but I used to have much larger hair and I would, um, my niece's coworker, my niece was a hairdresser and her coworker, this sweet man named Frank, he designed the wig for me and he would wash it and style it. And I never paid him because I was so broke back then. And, and after, you know, months and months and months, maybe over a year of him doing this, I, you know, I could sense he was like rolling his eyes every time he saw me pulling up to that. It, it's embarrassing. But, you know, when you're desperate and young, you just you just you you move through those uncomfortable moments. And and but I did get to the point where I've, I said I have to come up with something simpler that I can take care of. And so hence that cocoa wig that just requires me to put a steamer roller in. But as soon as I put it on. I thought, oh, this is Coco. This this look is Coco. Because I always loved a silhouette. And that I wanted to create a silhouette that if you saw that without my features of my face, you would know, you would think Coco Peru. In the same way you think, you see Barbara Streisand and a silhouette side, that beautiful nose of hers. You know that's Barbara Streisand. You see a silhouette of Liza, you know it's Liza. And so that's what I wanted. I was inspired by the, those women. I, I, it makes 100% sense. I, I, I totally get it. I, I think that that um, you should have, like, if you don't already, and I'm sure you already have, but, like, caricatures of yourself, which just that's just the wig and your Like, I think it would be amazing. Yeah, so, of course, my, my Jackie Beat and Bianca Del Rey, they all call me one wig. <laughs> that's funny yeah. that feels very on brand for them. Uh, yeah, exactly and I embrace <laughs> it I think they're just jealous they that's gotta lug all that other shit around that's right that's right so I'm so excited I um this won't air for a couple of weeks but I'm gonna get to see you on your tour and your bitter bother and beyond here in Atlanta so what goes into creating a show like for you you know, like when you decide, all right, I'm going to go back out. I'm going to hit the road. I'm going to show these people why I've been doing this shit for 30 years. Like what goes into it? Well, when I first start the process, it's absolutely terrifying. 
because I sit down in front of a blank computer and I go, what the hell am I going to talk about? I have nothing left to talk about. And then you just start typing and you think of like stories that you've told at a dinner party that maybe people thought were funny or something that resonated with people. You think about what you're going through in the current time of what's important to you and, and, um, and you just start writing and then slowly but surely um, these threads start to come together and and then you get a burst of inspiration. You sit down, but it it, it becomes my obsession then for months, and I'm writing every day, and I'll write a hundred and something pages that I have to then edit down into thirty pages. Then I have to pick songs for each separate monologue. Then I have to have those songs then. Uh, I have to have tracks made, which is a back and forth with the guy who's making them. And it's very expensive. And it's a very stressful process. And, but it's, when I get to share it with the audience and they give me that feedback, it all becomes it's worth it. And it, it, you know, I think this is why I do it. But the process I have to say is not a fun one for me. I hate it. And I, and I sometimes get a little bitter. <laughs> <laughs> when I see for your no, when I see when I see some some of the younger queens going out on the road and selling out, you know, crowds that I I can't get, and you know they're getting on stage, and well, I think that's your show. <laughs> I know, crazy. <laughs> it just amazes me. But at the end of the day, I've been doing it for so long. I think you know what, Queen. Just count your blessings that you can still get people to come see you. They keep a roof over your head. Just be grateful and stop comparing yourself. To I I agree. And what can people what like what can people expect when they see this show? Without giving too much away, I guess. For me, it's my gay church. Other people have said it was like group therapy for them, but you know, theater for me is and spoken word is what connects us. It's, it's, it's so rooted in what it means to be human and to share an experience that may not be yours, but by the end of the show, you realize on some level, it is your experience as well. And we might have very different lives, but we share these very common themes that make us human. So I think people leave feeling more connected to themselves, even though I've been talking about myself for an hour and a half, they do feel connected to themselves, to a greater community. And that that's what I think is missing in today's world where everybody is stuck looking at their phones. We've become very isolated. And I think the pandemic was a, and that lockdown was a sort of a metaphor for what we've created, you know, where we just keep isolating ourselves. And I think theater is what brings us together and, and really makes us more human. When you, um, first, uh, your website, uh, tell everyone the address so they can go and check out, because I'm sure you have plenty Coco of Peru CocoPeru.com, MissCocoPeru.com. Great. And then where else are you planning on going with the show? Well, you'll you'll see me in Atlanta. Um, I don't really have plans. Um, I'm going to Salt Lake City to do a set in, uh, in October. Amazing. Um, I'm doing it in Rochester, New York in November. 
right? the Friday of Thanksgiving, because that's going to be fun to travel around. 100%. But, um, and then Golden Girls. And then after that, I'm not exactly sure what my schedule is. So I can't really give you a schedule right now. But um, basically, I'll go where anybody will hire me um, and <laughs> just spread the word of Coco. <laughs> I appreciate it. That's for sure. I performed um, at a gay naturist event this summer. I am a naturist. I, I love being naked. But um, I didn't do the show naked, of course. But um, sure. yeah, so... But I performed for like 400 naked gay men and it was the most wonderful. I did, I did it two years in a row. It's wonderful. So, you know, I'm open to any kind of, I performed in people's living rooms, um, theaters, cabarets here in Chicago as at the iconic Zanies, which is a comedy club. So anywhere they'll hire me where um, I'll go usually. When you look back on your career, and all of the thing, amazing things that you have done, what would you tell yourself, um, tell a younger version of yourself? I would tell my younger version to not be so bullying to myself and also to not be so fearful of everything and everyone. And so that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to um, uh, to have the doubts, but to really push through that. And I, I wasted a lot of years and a lot of brain energy being um, doubting myself, doubting my talent. And um, I see a lot of other people who don't have that that problem in their brain. And, and and often, the, I, I even wonder sometimes if those people, you know, they don't even have sometimes as much talent as other people I know who are filled with such self-doubt, but somehow they, they make it because they're not worried about what people think. And so um, I think sometimes artists can be their own worst enemy because they spend a lot of time in their head. And so I would, I sing a song in this new show called Yeah. Yes, say yes. It's an old Liza Minnelli song. And um, I would tell my younger self to say yes more often. Yeah. Pretty powerful. <laughs> I think that we forget to show ourselves. I was thinking about something to say back to that because I was processing what you were saying. But I think we forget a lot in life to be able to show ourselves a little bit of grace. You know, especially, listen, I know, I remember that you are a Virgo and you and I, I think, share the same actual birth date. Birth date. Yeah, August 27th. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, that we can be perfectionists or we strive for perfection. Um, so I have definitely learned uh, through life experiences and definitely through working on mental health and sobriety for sure that, you know, it doesn't have to always be in our control, you know, and, and allowing ourselves a little bit of grace to fuck up here and there and to not be perfect um, is okay. And that's, that's definitely been a tough pill to swallow. So I understand when you say this. Yeah. I, I screwed up the other night in my show, uh, a song and I had to stop it and whatnot. 
And um, I, I can't tell you how freeing it was mm-hmm. to just be okay with it and to be like, hey, this happens. And I even tell the audience, this rarely happens. So what a treat it is for you to see me have to go through this. You know, and it endeared the audience to me more because I think we all fuck up. And the fact that you can survive, laugh at yourself and take it from there is is a wonderful thing. And I, and I also think being vulnerable mm-hmm. is OK. Yeah, it's not the easiest, but it no, is. But, but it, it is. It's OK. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I want to ask you? Uh I uh, have decided that, I'm, and I'm going to do this as part of this new season. I'm always going to ask for like a piece of life advice at the end of every episode. Oh God! I want it. Why don't you give me something? I am finally going to start kind of dating again. I t- I'm taking some time away from that world because uh, I really need to focus on myself, and I, I'm at a really great point in my life where I feel like I'm the best version of myself. So, with that being said, I can be something to someone else. You know, I feel like for the longest time, maybe when I dated, I was like just filling a void, and I wasn't the best boyfriend or partner to somebody because I wasn't being good to myself. So, I wonder if you have any uh, in your cocoa Peru wisdom advice for me as I try to find. A, gen- <laughs> a genuine uh, relationship. Woody, is this really the best version of yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Do better. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I mean, my husband and I have been together 28 years. Right. And right. I met him, you know, at a time when I was, I mean, I think I've become a better person because of him sure and so i would say that when you're dating someone they're there to you have to give a hundred percent and they have to give a hundred percent and and my i've disappointed my husband i've upset my husband you know all of those things but through it all i've tried to learn from that and then elevate and become a better, like you said, a better version of myself. And I think if if your partner and vice versa, if you realize that you're both growing together and that these moments are meant to challenge you and you, you accept the challenge to work through that and become the better per- version of yourself, that's what it's about. And that those hard moments are not, moments necessarily where you run away unless unless you really it's for your safety or for you know your mental health but um you know a relationship is a wonderful for me with Raphael uh it has been a wonderful safe place for me to become that better version of myself yeah the last thing I want to do, I do on every episode. It's called Woody's Roundup. So it's a bunch of like rapid fire kind of questions. Um, they'll be like where you pick or choose or you give me an answer. So I want you to give me your honest answer as I ask each one. You ready? Uh-huh. All right. Curly fries or tater tots? Curly fries. Okay. Men with facial hair or without? I don't give a shit. <laughs> Coffee or tea? Oh, honey, that's 
<laughs> I mean, it depends on the time of the day. Coffee okay. in the morning, tea in the afternoon. Okay. I'm Absolutely. I'm I'm versed that way. <laughs> Is that the only way? No. <laughs> <laughs> um outside of your lovely self, who uh drag wise do you like? Oh gosh. Varla Jean Merman. Oh, okay. I know. I love Varla Jean Merman, but there's so many. Jinx Monsoon. I love what Peaches Christ, the whole horror. There's so many. But yeah. 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 Um, favorite holiday. My favorite holiday, Halloween. Oh. I don't right. dress up on Halloween. <laughs> or you don't dress up on Halloween. No, that's my oh. day off. I love Halloween because I don't have to come <laughs> back. I get to watch everybody else play. And I think, why aren't you doing this? more often i love that i love that um brunch or happy hour well i don't drink but i would prefer uh, uh well see i hate brunches they're <laughs> overpriced <laughs> so i would choose happy hour a little okay. salted snack and a, and a, a nice uh, a nice soda water i agree um best way to impress someone be authentic. Agreed. That's the Virgo talking right there. <laughs> I, I had a moment on Will and Grace with Sean Hayes, and, and that was the lesson for me. It was a great moment where he, he asked me, you know, what do you do when you're not out on the road? And I thought, oh my God, he's so fabulous, a big star. I've, I've got to make something up to make myself. So, uh, and then I thought, no, Coco, just be real with this person. And I went, I sit on my couch. That's my luxury, Sean, sitting on my couch. And he went, oh, my God, me too. And we hit it off and became friends because I was authentic. Yeah, that's all it takes. People forget. So I, I 100% feel that. Okay. So, um, Something you feel is overrated. Something I feel is overrated? Oh, that's a hard one. What's overrated? Like I, I like if I first thing that would pop in my mind is um, almond joy candy bars. Like I think I don't think they're good at all. I think like it's overrated. Like why is that a candy bar? I love almond joys. <laughs> How dare you? Of course you too. You know what's overrated? Your opinions about <laughs> almond joys. <laughs> I'll take I'll take that one. I'll take that okay. one. I felt you slapped me for some <laughs> um what always makes you laugh? Oh I I love um children falling down. I watch those kids getting hurt video and some of them are, you know, but they they're it, they're always posted with the you know, knowing that the, the child was okay. Sure. You know, I mean, sure. I really don't want to see people get really hurt. That, that that's upsetting to me. But um, seeing people, you know, in funny situations like that, it just, it just, I don't know. My whole family's like, we have my family has a very dark, dark, dark sense of humor. Sure. I think it's yeah. part of surviving. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Farting also inappropriate farting anywhere just cracks me up. <laughs> I, I was at a very sensitive part of my show last night. I think someone parted in the audience. Oh. I heard it. And it took me everything <laughs> to sing that song without laughing. 
<laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I should just hold the good one for you, like in the middle of your show. Oh, here. yeah. Just let it rip. <laughs> Hysterical. Um, Twizzlers or Red Vines? Twizzlers. Yeah, me too. All day. Those I used to bite the ends off and then sip my milk through the strawberry ones. Really? Yeah. That's funny. Um, do you have a favorite book? Oh, well, um, I, I have many favorite books, but right now I'm reading Charles Bush's um, Leading Lady, a memoir of a most unusual boy. And oh. because Charles Bush was such a hero of mine, um, I'm, I'm just soaking it up. And what's amazing to me is that Charles, being my sort of drag mother, it's interesting to read his book and see his experience is almost identical in this weird sort of way of how he found that person that inspired him. And, and so it's always like the torch is being passed. But anyway, that's one of the books that I love. And another book I love is a Spanish novel called um, Shadow in the Wind. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wait, quick synopsis. What is it? Very gothic and very magical and beautiful. Okay. And absolutely. Absolutely hilarious at times. I'll have to. I'll have to check it out. Um, yeah. You're. Uh, do you have a crush, like a celeb crush, right now? Oh. Um. No, not really. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, I used to say The Rock years ago. Um, so I'm sure if The Rock walked through my hotel uh, room right now, I'd be like, "What a say ya." You're like, gotta go. <laughs> gotta go. Rock just showed up. <laughs> okay, last but not least, is there something about you that would surprise the listeners? Um, well, you know, for many years, I think I was known as this um, like nice drag queen, even though I think the videos now of me shopping show like that sort of crankier side of myself. So it's very interesting now because there are people, especially other drag queens, as they get to know, like Heclina could not, was so delighted because she always thought I was a bit aloof and a bit snobby. And it was only because I was so shy, but she was so delighted that my sense of humor was so, so dark. Like the darker it was, the harder her and I were tackling. And then, um, then there's other people who will come to see my shows nowadays who only know me through those videos and be like, I didn't realize how sensitive and like how moving your show would be for me. And so there's those two sides of me, I think that people find surprising. Mm -hmm. I love, I love that. Well, I want to, uh, I want to just say wholeheartedly, thank you for continuing to be your authentic self um, for all of these years and for continuing to be someone that um, helps lead the movement in a lot of ways, whether you're doing it intentionally or not. Um, I appreciate you. I appreciate you always being you and being kind. Uh, and I really appreciate you doing my show. Thank you. And I want to thank you, Woody, because you've always supported my shows. And in LA, sometimes when I had trouble selling tickets to my shows because the gay magazines wouldn't promote me because they were only interest, interested in putting um, very handsome, half-naked, guys that nobody really knew their names on the front of their magazines and not an old drag queen. <laughs> not that I'm bitter, but you, you would um, 
help me out and and try to get word out there for me. So I do. I've never forgotten that. Well, I, I, I see authentic people and I've always said that I don't care where I am or what city I'm in. I will do whatever I can to help someone that I, I care for. And I admire. So anytime, boo, anytime. Thank you. I love you so much. I can't wait to see you. I will see, I'll you, see you soon. I'll be on the show. I'll be at the show. Thank you again, Coco. Great. Have a wonderful day, sweetheart. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye.